Is there a specific climate-triggering event signaling the beginning of the end of human habitation on this planet? Has the collapse of food systems and human civilization already begun? Why does the UN Climate Change Conference of the Parties coming in November ignore warning signs we witness in the peer-reviewed journal literature? Could an elaborate display of mirrors on planet Earth hold the key to delaying current levels of planetary warming? This week on the Global Research News Hour, we spend the entire program with conservation biologist, social prophet, and predictor of near-term human extinction, Guy McPherson, for a rousing discussion of climate disruption triggering events, elite management of the situation, and one sliver of a chance he's exploring of how our devise as a species could possibly be avoided. On this week's program, Climate Change Worse Than Expected, a conversation with Guy McPherson. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of October 15th, 2021. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg, on occupied Anishinaabegaki, the homeland of the Metis and the historical territory of the Nahiwak and the Nakota. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and are available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We'll begin our show with News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. According to Dr. Pierre Corey, MD, MPA, and verified by the Frontline COVID-19 Critical Care Alliance, or FLCCC, 100 to 200 congressional reps and or staff and families who contracted COVID-19 were treated with the Frontline Ivermectin Protocol, link and link. This successful treatment is happening at the same time many congressional representatives are playing politics in favor of the vaccine, downplaying the effective antiviral treatment and therapeutic approach with ivermectin and taking action to block regular American citizens from seeking similar treatment with ivermectin. Congress can seek treatment with the medication they simultaneously deny to others? This is well beyond a scandal and needs to be investigated quickly. That comes from the article, 100 to 200 members of Congress, families, and staff treated with ivermectin, no hospitalizations, by Sundance. Posted October 13th, originally posted at The Last Refuge. Landmarking applied to inoculations is defined as, quote, an area or point on a soft tissue used as a point of reference for measurements of the body or its parts, unquote. In the video, the registered nurse compares the procedure applied to Justin Trudeau and his wife to that routinely applied to patients receiving a vaccine injection. In every single case of patients receiving the vaccine, landmarking is applied. 
That is the proper way to give it. Zero landmarking applied to Justin Trudeau. That comes from the article, Video, Has Justin Trudeau Been Duly Vaccinated? Registered Nurse Expresses Doubt on Authenticity of Trudeau's Vaccine Jab. By Professor Michal Chosodovsky, posted October 13th. A group of physicians and scientists met in Rome, Italy, earlier this month for a three-day global COVID summit to speak truth to power about COVID pandemic research and treatment. The summit, which was held from September 12th to September 14th, gave the medical professionals an opportunity to compare studies and assess the efficacy of the various treatments that have been developed in hospitals, doctor's offices, and research labs throughout the world. The document, reprinted below in its entirety, sprang from a physician's conference in Puerto Rico. The physician's declaration was first read at the Rome COVID Summit, catalyzing an explosion of active support from medical scientists and physicians around the globe. These professionals were not expecting career threats, character assassination, papers, and research-censored social accounts blocked, search results manipulated, clinical trials and patient observations banned, and their professional history and accomplishments altered or omitted in academic and mainstream media. That comes from the article, Over 7,000 doctors and scientists sign Rome Declaration Accusing COVID Policymakers of Crimes Against Humanity. By Deborah Hain, posted October 13th, originally published at American Greatness. The World Health Organization's database, for example, records over 2 million potential COVID vaccines injuries in 2021. According to an analysis of data recorded in the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System, or VAERS, quote, the total number of deaths associated with the COVID-19 vaccines is greater than the number of deaths associated with all other vaccines combined since the year 1990, unquote. According to a U.S. government whistleblower, nearly 50,000 people died in the United States within two weeks of receiving the vaccines. Amazingly, those responsible for this debacle are making record profits. More amazingly still, one of the main architects of this fiasco, Pfizer CEO Albert Bourla, has the audacity to claim that his company has done more for the good of mankind than any other company. That comes from the article, Pfizer's CEO Alfred Bourla, quote, We are very proud of what we have done, unquote. Vaccine triggers countless deaths and wave of hospitalizations. By Vasco Colmayer, posted October 13th, originally published at lewrockwell.com. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar.
After a season of wildfires and higher-than-average temperatures, it's difficult now to ignore climate change, even in the province of Alberta. A lack of a plan is to pretty much sacrifice the next federal election. But the climate change scenario may have reached the point where it really is too late to save the planet. I recently spoke with Guy McPherson, one of the most outspoken prognosticators of near-term human extinction, to talk about the fate that human beings face following the latest IPCC report. Here is our conversation. Uh, we want to introduce another guest to today's show, actually somebody who's been on the show uh, many times before, who's invested a, an extraordinary amount of time investigating the peer-reviewed research behind the science that's out there. And, uh, uh, of course, he has uh, extraordinary credentials of his very own, and his name is Dr. Guy McPherson. He's an internationally recognized speaker, award-winning scientist, and the world's leading authority on abrupt climate change, leading to near-term human extinction. Guy McPherson was 49 when he became Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources and Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at the University of Arizona. Guy taught and conducted research for more than 20 award-winning years at Texas A&M University, University of Arizona, University of California, Berkeley, uh, the Southern Utah University, and Grinnell College. He's produced a dozen books and hundreds of articles. Unlike most environmental activists, he does not talk about people needing to redouble their efforts in order to reduce the impacts of climate change. Uh, like a cancer doctor, he does not shy away from bad news, that it is really too late for those methods to work. So in light of the recent IPCC report and the upcoming conference in Glasgow, we'll turn our attention to his insights and, and perhaps any difference of opinion he may have uh, taken uh, uh, over the course of the last couple of years. Guy McPherson joins us from his brand new home in Vermont. Uh, so welcome uh, to back to the Global Research News Hour, Guy. It's great having you back. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to chat with you again. Why don't we start with uh, the, the subject of, of, of abrupt climate change. We should focus on uh, these uh, trigger events. You know, I, I, I'm thinking I'm thinking of two in particular, the the polar ice cap melting, you know, and and the aerosol masking effect. I think those both qualify as 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 you know trigger events. Uh, maybe you can think of a, a, a couple of others as well. But maybe we'll start with those two top ones. Uh, you know, in terms of you know how they're about to uh, you know once they, that well once either one of them is uh, initiated say, uh, where they, they reduce aerosol masking or they, you know, the polar ice cap completely melt. Talk about how that, once triggered, will accelerate the Okay, that's, that's great. That's a great place to start. And I want to back up and start a little earlier than that. In his latest book, renowned professor Andrew Glickson said that we are in the midst of abrupt climate change, he indicates that we have warmed to two degrees C above the 1750 baseline in not much more than a single human generation. This is Andrew Glickson, a renowned professor at the Australian National University, indicating that we have already warmed to C 
that that ship left the station a long time ago, and now we're dealing with the effects of abrupt climate change. The considered and ongoing effects include a near-term loss of ice floating on the Arctic Ocean. This is floating ice, so it will make very, it will have almost no impact on sea level rise. I see a lot of people focused on sea level rise, and I think they're pointing their focus in the wrong direction. Instead, what matters here is we're effectively taking an, an ocean surface covered with white ice that has high albedo or reflectance and converting it to dark blue, which is great at absorbing additional energy. That's not what we want. We don't want to absorb more energy on this planet. We've already had enough of that. We're, we are already at 2C above the 1750 baseline and rapidly increasing the melting of the Arctic ice, which was incorrectly projected to have occurred in 2016, plus or minus three years, in a paper written by Vislav Moslavsky and colleagues and published in the Annual Review of Earth and Planetary Sciences in 2012. So it looks terrible. And when we lose the Arctic ice, which, you know, we've, we've been lucky so far at having not lost that, that Arctic ice, but it could happen next year. It could happen the year after that. And in fact, James Anderson, the Harvard atmospheric scientist famous for discovering the link between chlorofluorocarbons and the ozone hole in the Antarctic, says, quote, the chance there will be permanent ice in the Arctic after 2022 is essentially zero, end quote. That was in Forbes on January 15th, 2018. Then along comes Jennifer McKinnon at the Scripps Institution and also at the University of California, San Diego. And she said she expects the ice-free Arctic to occur in 2022 with full impacts being realized the following year, 2023. But then she says, but it might come a year later. In either case, whether it's 2022 or 2023, that's not long from now. And the impacts of an ice-free Arctic Ocean are profound. The very rapid rate of environmental change in the wake of that event, as nearly as I can tell from the perspective of a conservation biology, will be so rapid that few, if any, species are able to keep up with that rate of change. That's, that's catastrophic, not just for those of us who consider ourselves near the top of the food chain. And here I'm going to refer to another scholar, the lead author of the first peer-reviewed paper that came out about the ongoing mass extinction event and its impacts on Temperature in Humans. This was published June 19th, 2015. This is the research article that is, is named Accelerated Modern Human-Induced Species Losses Entering the Sixth Mass Extinction. This was published in Science Advances. And the lead author, Gerardo Ceballos, said in an interview at the time, quote, life would take many millions of years to recover, and our species itself would likely disappear early on. So we're, it's not just about the bunnies, it's not just about the butterflies, it's not just about the bees, it's about us. Because we're at the end of this long train of events that comes to us in the way of pollinators acting freely on our behalf, filter feeders cleaning up the water so that we can drink it, 
and so on, providing all of these free services that we have for many years failed to acknowledge the importance of. And so here we are, right on the brink of extinction ourselves. And you've pointed out a couple of ways that could take us right over the edge. Yeah, well, you mentioned that, uh, I mean, and, and as a somebody who's a, as an evolutionary biologist, I mean, this is certainly uh, in, in your uh, camp to comment on, but like, I, I'm just wondering how, I mean, when you say, you know, that uh, human beings are, are, are likely to, I mean, not, forgive me for being a little bit biased, but I mean, how is that likely, like what effect is that going to take in terms of, uh, I mean, is it just going to, is our, our water going to vanish? Is our food going to dry up? I mean, how, what, what's the exact mechanism, if I could ask? Right. Just to right. probe a little further. Well, yeah, we're human animals. You know, most people, when they say animals, they're referring, referring exclusively to non-human animals. Or when they say, when they call somebody an animal, that's an insult. Because clearly we're talking about non-human animals. If you call somebody, oh, he's an animal. So we are human animals. What that means is we depend upon habitat too. Habitat is comprised of many factors. It's not just the clean water that's provided for the most part by filter feeders in the water. It's not just the pollination of crops, some of which occurs admittedly through the wind instead of through insects. It's about the temperature and the relatively stable temperature that we have experienced so far. So let's go back about 10,000 years. We've come out of the last ice age. And for the first time that we can detect over the course of the last 2 billion years, the planetary temperature stabilized at about one and a half degrees above that 12 degrees Celsius ice age. So the temperature warms up, but it doesn't just warm up, it stabilizes at about 13 and a half degrees C above that, or 13 and a half degrees C global average temperature. So that's a relatively cool temperature and it stabilized there for a few thousand years. During that few thousand years, Although Homo sapiens had been on this planet for about 320,000 years with no civilization ever arising. And yet during the first few thousand years after that temperature stabilized coming out of the last ice age, civilizations popped up all over the planet just for the first time ever. And here I'm defining civilization by the ability to grow, store, and distribute grains at scale. So if you can't grow corn, wheat, soybeans, that's considered wheat or, or grains these days. If you can't grow these crops at a relatively large scale that can be stored, and this is critically important to civilization. If you're a hunter or gatherer, you almost always have to move around from one place to another to find the food because the food keeps moving around and, and escaping you. But with grains, they give us a whole new world a whole new world opens up to us, and that's the ability to store these things for an extended period of time, many years, in fact. So if, as long as you find a cool, dry place, like a cave, you can store corn, you can store wheat for a very long period of time. So you can get through what used to be hard times that would 
cause a dwindling of the human population, at least locally or regionally. And now it has no impact because we got corn stored, because we got wheat stored, so we can get through those hard times. So this is new. The, the, the climate changed to our benefit as a civilization and arguably as a species just a few thousand years ago. And here we are now massively overpopulating the planet as a result. So it sounds as if uh, from what you're saying, the, the first sign of, of this, uh, uh, you know, call it collapse and extermination will be the collapse of our civilization. That will be, you know, step one, I guess you might say. And, and that, yeah. through that, that we would have uh, a, a definite, uh, where, where the decline starts to begin. Yes, and I would argue that that's already started. I lived in Belize in Central America for about two and a half years, in 2016 through the end of 2018. And people there were talking about how they used to be able to grow food, and they can't anymore because the weather has changed. People who had lived there for their entire lives knew the stories from their parents and from their own youth that had them growing the, had them growing corn specifically and storing that corn and getting through the tough times. You know, we have a an immigration crisis on our southern border, and it seems that Amer a lot of Americans believe that the people coming up from Central America and Mexico and even South America just want a free trip to Disneyland. Trust me, those people are suffering. They're not invading the United States because they want to go to Disneyland. They haven't heard anything about the great restaurants and the great hotels to stay, and they don't have the money for that anyway. They're leaving their family home of many generations because they can no longer survive there. When I was on a speaking tour in Western Europe about six and a half years ago, the same thing was happening there. People were... And, and, you know, I tend to think of Western Europeans as being more enlightened, more open-minded than Americans are, because how could you not be? And yet the whole time I was on tour there for three or four weeks, the common thing I kept hearing was about these people from Northern Africa and the Middle East invading our borders, and we don't have enough anything for more people. It's already happening. It's already underway. People are already suffering. People are already dying by the millions, according to the peer-reviewed literature. And it hasn't affected you to any great extent. It hasn't affected me to any great extent, in large part because we, we picked great parents who picked great places to live, right? And so <laughs> that really wasn't much of our doing, but it might be our undoing. <laughs> We had a, a lot of, uh, over the course of the, the last summer, we had a lot of wildfires and then hot temperatures in, the, in uh, the province of British Columbia. There were, you know, really like raging heat in Canada, but, uh, you know, so hot that, and it, it took out a large number of people. It actually competed with the news about COVID. And uh, I mean, I, I, given the fact that uh, with, with the, the polar ice cap melting, you're you're seeing more or or less variation between the, the Arctic and, and and the tropics, and so there's a, a lot easier. You can have the the, the the jet stream starts acting in all sorts of weird ways. I, I'm wondering if you could just familiarize ourselves with 
some of the ways in which our, our climate can be affected? I mean, is, is this sort of thing, climate, uh, hot temperatures, wildfire, and, and possibly other sorts of activities, uh, even in my uh, neck of the woods, uh, record low levels of precipitation. T talk a little bit, if you can, about the, the instances that will, uh, meteorologically speaking, that will crop up as the, the pole continues to melt and, and as these, uh, that relaxation of the, uh, the differential between uh, the two regions are uh, continuing to uh, go awry. Yeah. Go awry. Yeah, that's an important observation pointed out in the peer-reviewed literature most frequently by Jennifer Francis going back years now. And she's been um, subjected to horrible insults as a result of pointing out the facts in the peer-reviewed literature. The well, there, there used to be a very profound temperature difference between the equator and the North Pole, between between the northern and southern parts of the globe. And that profound difference in temperature has declined. As the planet has warmed, it has warmed most rapidly in the north. So the northern regions are warming more, most rapidly and in places north of the Arctic Circle, that rate of increase has been two to five times greater than the global average. And the resulting reduction in difference in temperature has caused significant changes that you and I have noticed in our daily lives. It used to be that when I was a kid growing up in Northern Idaho, when you were a kid growing up in Southern Canada, these, what they called polar expresses would be these cold fronts that would sweep across the continent in five days they'd go all the way from the west coast to the east coast in five days and it'd be bitter cold and clear behind them and lots of snowfall being dumped in front of them now those events don't just sweep across the continent anymore they they get hung up and so they bring record snowfall in places like the northeastern United States and record high temperatures because of the wavy jet stream is bringing high temperatures to the southern part of the United States and very low temperatures and snow, lots of precipitation, to the northern United States and southern Canada. So we're seeing all kinds, and so this is a frequent objection that I hear when I talk about abrupt climate change. People say, it's still cold where I am. There's more snow than we've ever had. It's record snow, in fact. And I was in, I was in Winnipeg in 2012, I think February 2012. Does that sound about right to you? Or was it 2014? It was 2014. That's right. You're right. It was 2014. And it was the coldest temperature. I don't know if this record has been broken, but at the time, it was the coldest temperature in Winnipeg ever colder in winnipeg for the entire time i was there i don't recall how long it was approximately a week it was colder during that week than it was on the surface of mars and i remember canada had these new currency bills that had a lot of plastic in them and people would put the plastic bills in their back pocket and then they'd reach to get them out and they had fragmented into a thousand pieces when that's your ten dollar bill 
you don't want it to fall apart. No. Now, that's, that's occurring the same time that you could argue that the currency is falling apart at a more national level. But but it's really inconvenient. There was all kinds of infrastructure problems in Winnipeg because it was cold. And so I try to point out to people that the cold is to be expected too. Record cold, record heat. As the planet warms, there's all kinds of weather weirding that comes along with it. It's very difficult to predict. These fires that you were talking about have been predicted for a very long time. Some places are going to get drier. As a as a general rule, a warmer planet is a wetter planet because more, more ocean water, more fresh water is evaporated at higher temperature and gets up into the atmosphere and has to come down somewhere. What goes up must come down. So in general, a warmer planet is a wetter planet. But specifically, for specific locations, like the western United States, a lot of dry places have become drier. Places like the nor- northern Cascades up into British Columbia, they have become drier. And so once the fire gets started, the fuel that has accumulated through generations of mm, suspect management, we'll say, leaves lots of fuel out there to burn. Big fires, that's no particular surprise to people who've been paying attention for a few years. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. In case you just joined us, uh, we're listening to uh, Guy McPherson, Professor Guy McPherson, Professor Meredith. Uh, he has um, been speak- we're speaking about the, 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 the common... Uh, belief uh, that the, the key issue of, of climate change. Guy, I, I want to get you to address, if you could, uh, the, the upcoming climate conference in Glasgow. I mean, it still seems to be caught up in the idea of radical reduction of uh, fossil fuels uh, emissions by, by 2030 in, in order to improve our chances, but it seems like this is virtually the same agenda we were pursuing 30 years ago in, in, at Rio, right? I mean, we had to develop visions that incorporate carbon shifting, uh, we, we have the concept of net zero and, and with time frames. And, and I find that, oh yeah, and I find that when given recent reports about CO2 concentration, that they're now using dates going back to 1850, and not, not 1750, which was, you know, whatever they had, they can leave, it was previously the, the standard. So it seems like they're, you know, they're, 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 they're putting their fingers on the scales in a way, I mean, or or doing whatever they can to leave us with hope. And I've been an environmentalist for most of my life now, and and while I don't mind optimism, there there comes a time where we have to say, time's up, you know? And and if we follow the peer-reviewed reports, I I think we would come to the same conclusions that you have, I think. So I, I want to know about what you think about the, the climate conference is actually doing. Is this about trying to keep something going, possibly unrelated unrelated to climate change? Or, or is it just a reality that, well, it's just such a conservative nature, the conservative nature of, of analyzing science, as you know. I mean, what are your thoughts? I think it's both. You know, this will be 26, 26 times we've had a COP, Conference of Parties, 26 times they've come together, and 26 times they've told us, you, you and me, Michael, and the masses out there, 
We need to reduce our carbon emissions. This is is classic. There, there are at least three things going on here. There's there's victim shaming because you and me and the masses of people are the victims of these. Mm, we'll call them relatively wealthy folks who are not reducing their carbon emissions one damn bit. You know it and I know it. But they are pointing at you and me to do exactly that. This goes back to a book written in 1865 by William Stanley Jevons called The Coal Question. I think that's right. And in there we can find Jevons' paradox. Jevons' paradox has two parts. One, the more efficient we become at using any finite material, such as, for example, fossil fuels, the faster we use it. The more we use it, the faster we use it, because we get better at using. Consider, for example, the 2008 financial crisis. What happened in the wake of that was car manufacturers became better at harnessing power, more horsepower for the gallon of gasoline. What did they do? Instead of making a car that got better gas mileage, more kilometers per, per gallon, what they did instead was make a, an engine that was bigger, that would go faster, that would burn the fuel faster. That's human nature. That's just what we do. And that's what we've done for a very long time, as pointed out by William Stanley Jevons in The Cold Question in 1865. The other part of that paradox, Jevons' paradox, is that any fuel that you and I don't use, anything that is a finite material, and he was talking about primar primarily about coal because this was 1865, any piece that you don't use, somebody else is going to use. So, of course, the overall message of the corporate media, let's call them what they are, the corporate media, the overall message is you got to consume. I mean, you got to conserve. You and I have to conserve so that somebody else can consume. It's a big club, as George Carlin used to say, and you ain't in it. Well, it, I mean, it, it, I, I think it's still the case that the, 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 the single biggest uh, contributor to, to greenhouse gases uh, and, and, and consumption of fossil fuels is the U.S. military industrial complex. They get a special exemption to this uh, the climate activism, you know, and then that seems to remain in effect. Um, Absolutely. And what do yeah. they do for us? They allow me ready access to relatively inexpensive fossil fuels. That's their job, and they're doing it stunningly well. Yeah. Um, but on the... Uh, on the, the, the positive side, because I, I know that when you talked to me before, and I think in our first conversation, I, I was kind of in that, I guess, that third stage of, of, of bargaining, you know, and just saying, well, what about this? What about Martians? What about, the, you know, and, and going through it and, and then get, getting discouraged. But it sounds to me now that you do have a, a kind of a solution, a partial solution. Yes. And, uh, well, not you necessarily, but uh, the, the, the so-called mere reflection that, that that's being proposed. Um, and, and it's a type of... Uh, basically talking about building or increasing the albedo of, uh, you know, as, as the North, North Pole seems to be losing its ice, a major form of albedo, uh, th this is making up for it and stopping our, 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 our planet from warming further. Could you just explain that to us and then how yes. it came to be that? I would love to. Dr. Ye Tao at Harvard's Roland Institute contacted me 
several months after he discovered my work. I think on YouTube, I'm not sure. And he's, Dr. Tao is an award-winning physicist and he is very interested in biology and ecology. And so months after he came across my work, he wrote to me and said, I have this idea. This is a very, very talented, multi-talented engineer and physicist. And he says, what we need to do is stop the, stop the sun from hitting the Earth's surface. Because if it doesn't hit the Earth's surface, then it can't warm the Earth. And then the fossil fuels don't matter because the fossil fuels act as something like a blanket. By burning fossil fuels, we produce those greenhouse gases that we all know about that go up into the atmosphere. And the greenhouse effect is essentially trapping heat and holding it down close to the Earth. But if we don't heat the planet at all, then we don't have to worry about those greenhouse gases considerably adding to the blanket and therefore holding the heat close to Earth. What about if we use mirrors, actual physical mirrors, and put them out at ground level where it's inexpensive to place them and have them reflect the incoming light before it hits the Earth? before it has a chance to warm the soil and warm the sea and so on. And I thought that was sheer genius. And for years, at this point, probably six or eight years, I'd been going around pointing out the evidence that we're completely screwed and there's no way around it. If we reduce industrial activity that causes these particles to fall out of the sky and called aerosols, and that warms the planet even faster than continuing to burn greenhouse gases, fossil fuels leading to production of greenhouse gases. So I thought we were screwed either way. And then Dr. Tao comes up with this brilliant idea and, oh, the humility I experienced. Now, I never wanted to be wrong. I never wanted to be right about this. You know, I never wanted to be right about us going extinct by next Tuesday as it's, as accordingly, as according to the people on Reddit say, I, I've, I've announced that we're going to be extinct by next Tuesday, every Tuesday. And I never wanted to be right about that, but I didn't think there was a way out. And then this relatively young man comes to me and says, how about this? And we subsequently met for a few hours and talked about the idea and talked about the idea on Zoom and so forth online. And it's sheer genius. I think Dr. Tao should win the Nobel Peace Prize just for having the idea. I think it is that profound. It's that it's so much out of the blue. It's something that I never thought of that apparently nobody else had ever thought of either because the, the best we have up until that point is a colleague of his, David Keith at Harvard, who is proposing spraying aerosols into the sky, something that we would have to do literally forever in order to retain the temperature at the point it is. Whereas putting physical mirrors out on the ground is something that we would have to do and maintain every two or three decades, right? So it's a relatively durable solution. In fact, Professor Keith criticized Dr. Tao's idea because it was durable. He said, this is no way to make money for the 1%. 
And clearly, that's the most important thing on this planet. Are you kidding me? And so Dr. Keith actually criticized this brilliant idea because it wouldn't be a way of making money for the extended period of time for the wealthy. This is absurd and ridiculous. And I'm not even remotely surprised. <laughs> well, maybe I'll just ask, because I know that the peer-reviewed literature, because this essentially, I mean, this is a, a geoengineering uh, yeah, role, right? And, and so, and, and peer-reviewed journal literature said that, uh, you know, these, uh, these sorts of approaches, which we might feel the need to take, can have the side effect of making the situation worse, if I'm not mistaken. How yes. do you approach that? How, how would you argue your, uh, would you rebut that, if I might, might say? Right, absolutely. In fact, the National Academy of Sciences of the United States and the European body of similar stature, both in 2015, indicated that geoengineering is a bad idea, should not be pursued, because it might have adverse side effects. Fair enough. And that's the side I was on and argued against geoengineering for years. And then along comes Dr. Tao's idea. This is, this is completely different than any other geoengineering strategy I've ever heard about. In addition, it's a framework. It's not just one idea. It's not spraying the sky with sulfates. It's not just putting mirrors out. It's called the mirror reflection framework because it's an entire framework of ideas that will be implemented at the same time. First, we're like the firefighters who have to put out the fire or at least suppress it to keep it from burning any longer. Then in an hour or two, we'll worry about the building coming down. But right now, let's get the people out of the building. Let's try to suppress the fire. That's where we're at. We're at the warmest earth with civilization present ever. We can't go another half a degree, I don't think, rapidly. And the rate of change is critically important here. I don't think we can add another half a degree rapidly, much less another degree and a half rapidly, and continue to survive on this planet. So that's inconvenient. I think we need to do something right now. I think we are in the midst of a planetary emergency. I think anything positive or negative that is introduced through the mirror reflection framework can be reversed very quickly. So the Dr. Tao has already done relatively small scale experimentation in which he has put mirrors out just above the surface of the earth and measured what goes on in the soil beneath them with mirrors and without mirrors. And he finds a profound increase in soil moisture and therefore increase in life forms beneath mirrors than adjacent to the mirrors. So if it has an adverse effect and we spend a couple billion dollars putting mirrors out and six months later we realize, oh, that was too many, what's the worst case scenario? Turn some of them upside down? Shut them off? Shut, turn down the switch a little bit? I, you know, I don't see any negative impacts that couldn't be reversed as rapidly as we can cause those negative impacts to occur. So yes, there may be negative impacts, but I guarantee you that there's gonna be negative impacts if we don't do something. We're in a really dire situation right now. People don't realize this is the warmest planet 
we have occupied with civilizations present. If we get much warmer, especially given the rapid rate of change that we're experiencing right now, we're done. It's game over. And you, you, you want to talk about details? You want to talk about how big a fire truck we should take to put out the fire? Let's just get all the damn fire trucks pointed in the right direction first. And, and then we can talk about, once the fire is calmed down a little bit, then we can talk about whether fire is good or bad for natural ecosystems. You know, yeah, I mean, you, you certainly make a, a good, your point sounds good to me, but I, I'm wondering some of the uh, uh, the obstacles that, that, that Tao is, is facing, and, and I guess yourself, I mean, in terms of like how, because this is going to be a very expensive project, and, you know, and what is necessary to, to get this going? Because I think all it's clear that all of the, 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 the major billionaires are uh, going with the, uh, the flow of, of the UN right now. What, what what needs to happen in order for this thing to actually go forward? Right. And so the first thing that needs to happen is, well, first of all, to back up a little bit, um, Dr. Tao has focused on the most abundant and least expensive materials on Earth. What does it take to make mirrors, physical mirrors? Sand. That's about it. You know, sand and, and another one or two readily available things. Now, admittedly, we are having such an impact on this planet, Homo sapiens, that there is, in, in many places right now, sand is going away. However, it's still better to start with a very abundant material than to start with, you know, we need three Jupiters and we need them here now, that sort of thing. So I think that Dr. Tao has pointed in the right direction. What comes next, though, beyond physical implementation of mirrors, which wouldn't, you know, from, from the perspective of you and me, Michael, that would take a lot of money. It would take hundreds of millions or maybe even a few billion dollars from perspective. We are not going to pay for that. I'm not going to reach into my pocket and say, well, I got five bucks. You know, that's not going to do it. But there's a handful or maybe a little bit more than a handful of people around the world who have that kind of money for whom it's really pocket change. A billion dollars here and there for the likes of Elon Musk, for the likes of Bill Gates and at least a half a dozen other people. It's just not that big a deal. What comes next is probably the most important criticism that those extremely wealthy people are launching. It's called a framework because it's not just about the mirrors. It's not just the physical implementation of these mirrors. It's also about changing the way we live. It's also because if we keep living exactly as we're living now, I don't care how many mirrors you put out there, how much you cool the planet, we're going to we're going to go faster. We're going to exceed the ability of the mirrors to reflect incoming energy and therefore we're going to continue to warm the planet. So the other parts of the framework have to do with the way we live. And I think that's where the real pushback is coming is because you know, you and I, Michael, are not millionaires. I'm barely in the category of hundredaires at this point, and yet we enjoy this enormous privilege, right? We go to the grocery store, 
and there's the stuff we need to eat right there every single time. We turn on the tap and water comes through it. We turn up the heat and the house heats up. We turn down the heat and the house cools. We got all these great things going for us. And we're in a position that for the most part, we don't want this to change. Right? And and I can imagine being a billionaire, I wouldn't want a thing to change. You snap your fingers and 37 people show up wanting to serve you. So if if the world if we can't do it that way anymore, if nearly 8 billion people with their wants and needs are pushing, pushing, ever pushing for more, more, and more, that's just not going to work. And if some of those people, the ones who could actually fund this thing, the ones who could support this thing and get it going, if they're the people who are going to lose, lose a lot of privilege, then I can see why they might not support it. I can see that some people might want to live another year or two or five years longer with this level of privilege than to give up any of it, even if it means they get to live for 50 more years and their grandkids get to live and their their grandkids' grandkids get to go on forever. I can see that because for the most part, these people who have billions of dollars are not tuned in with the kind of empathy that the rest of us have. They're concerned about themselves and their own privilege. And if they're not willing to give up a little bit of that, then I think we're screwed. Well, earlier you mentioned the shortages of food and and, then collapse uh, coming. And looking at this from the perspective of uh, the realities of of the planet, I mean, okay, Bill Gates and, and Rockefeller, Rockefeller and so on, uh, they have their, their own perspective. And I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but they possibly see the climate change, climate disruption writing on the wall and, and can predict these events will take place. We also know the records of some of them being quoted as Malthusians, okay, depopulating the planet. Uh, Bill Gates, certainly. Uh, we, we also know that, uh, well, according to a recent study by Oxfam, that over the course of uh, this pandemic, uh, the world's billionaires saw their collective wealth increase from, from $8 trillion to $13.5 trillion. That's 68% in just 16 months, while millions of people are losing their livelihoods. The, the sound you're hearing in the background is the laughter of the 2,690 billionaires as they walk into their banks. But taking it to, to the broader perspective, I mean, I have no doubt that these people see that there are too many people in the world and, and would welcome getting rid of some of them, uh, several of them. So if they are presented with a situation of, of assured climate collapse very shortly, what do you think they would do? I mean, would they announce it to the masses in an effort to coordinate a collective response or, or, or just do nothing? Or would they instead implement a silent agenda of their own? Something that some people see happening with this pandemic or, or right. maybe the response to it, you know, the vaccines. I mean, I, I don't you expect you to, to, to dig up peer-reviewed literature on, on this uh, subject per se, but what do you think generally of this convergence between abrupt climate change and this 
pandemic scenario? I mean, is it a coincidence or or or, or, or what do you see well, from the perspective of the elites, I guess you would say? The, the truly wealthy are among the most knowledgeable of humans on the planet. If you accept that premise, as I do, then you have to acknowledge that the really wealthy do not want to lose the aerosol masking. Most people don't know about aerosol masking. I didn't find out about it having studied climate change since the early 1980s from a scholarly perspective. I, I didn't know about aerosol masking until 2000, early 2012. So 40 years I was in the dark. And there's a paper by James Hansen and colleagues that comes out, that, and I thought it was the first one ever. I actually referred to it as the first paper ever to talk about the aerosol masking effect because they quoted no previous work. Get this. The work goes back at least to 1929. Peer-reviewed evidence goes back to at least 1929 by in a paper by a guy named Anders Angstrom pointing out that the level of aerosol masking at that point, 1929, was about the same as it was in December 2011 when Hansen and colleagues wrote their paper. So if you believe, as I do, that the truly wealthy out there are also truly knowledgeable and therefore they know the kinds of things we don't know, then I suspect they know about the aerosol masking effect. And so that puts into serious question, for me at least, about the depopulation agenda. Because getting rid of people over a course of even a generation is going to reduce that aerosol masking and overheat the planet very rapidly. So, you know, the system as it's as it's working today is working brilliantly for what we'll call the 1%, what I'll call the 1%, right? The, the truly wealthy folks, they're getting along just fine. They have all kinds of workers who are willing to work for very little privilege just throw them a bone every now and then. I was one of those receiving those bones every now and then for many years. And so as long as we keep this set of living arrangements going the way it is now, I think the the 1% are getting along just fine. Now, maybe they, maybe they recognize that we're on an overheated planet and something needs to be done because the population bomb certainly didn't do it. You know, the population bomb Paul Ehrlich in Ann Ehrlich's book, although Ann wasn't allowed to be on the cover because the publisher thought that a woman couldn't know anything about overpopulation in any event. That book came out in 1968. We've known for a long time that we are on an over hyper-strung planet, that we're demanding too much by having too many people. And the response, of course, has been to approximately double the human population since that book came out. <laughs> so that hasn't worked all that brilliantly. Uh, I, you know, I don't know about the truly wealthy people, the 1%. I don't know what they know. If they know about aerosol masking, then they cannot be on board with a population reduction over the course of, of even one or two generations. Because it's from now till 2100 that the models focus on for aerosol masking, even though, as James Hansen has pointed out many times, 
the aerosols fall out of the sky within five days. Still, the, the conventional scientific approach is to look out 90 or 100 years to come up with those projections. But it's not going to take that long for the planet to heat up if we reduce industrial activity. Bottom line, after all this shaggy dog story meandering around, is I don't know. I don't know what they know, but I suspect that the 1% are among the most knowledgeable of the people on Earth. And so that puts them in the same bind that you and I are in. We want we want to do the right thing. I'm not sure the 1% fits into the that category. The rest of us want to do the right thing. They want to do the right thing for them. And I'm not sure that the right thing for them is to reduce the human population and just keep their children and grandchildren around. So, sorry, but I don't really have a good answer for that. <laughs> well, you, you, you told us plenty. And, uh, yeah, you, you gave us a, a good overview of the whole global situation. And uh, maybe you'll you'll continue to, to ponder these and, and other ideas as we move forward. I, I'm afraid we're at, our, at the end of our time now, Dr. McPherson, but I want to really thank you for, for coming on the show. It's uh, really always a treat to have you back. Thank you, Michael. It's a pleasure to talk with, with you. You're one of, the peop one of the relatively few interviewers who actually allows me to answer the questions. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you for that. Thanks a lot. I've been speaking with uh, Guy McPherson, uh, he's Professor Emeritus of Natural Resources Ecology and a recognized speaker and award-winning scientist on uh, abrupt climate change leading to near-human extinction. We've reached the end of the program, but before we depart, a few words about next week's program. I sit down and chat with the author Richard Heinberg. He's a journalist, educator, and lecturer, a leading informed voice on the state of peak oil, and one of the leading advocates for encouraging people to shift away from our current consumption of fossil fuels He's just released a new book, Power, Limits and Prospects for Human Survival. It's a little different from much of his past work. He will be my future, feature guest on next week's show. In two weeks' time, I hope to return to the topic of the COVID vaccination, in which I hope to discuss the new vaccine passports and the danger and efficacy of the vaccine, among other things, and from all angles. I hope you'll join us then. You've been listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on occupied Anishinaabegaking, the homeland of the Métis and the historical territory of the Nahiawak and the Nakota. The show is aired on other radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been the show's host and producer, Michael Welch. Thank you once again for listening.